Our scripture reading this morning is verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So much to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into this. How then shall we live? We're dealing with a matter of Christian ethics today as we open this passage, Hebrews 13, this morning. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, what's that? Uh, and why would that be so important that we take some time to consider this matter of Christian ethics? I've noticed something recently. Our cultural norms in America have gone absolutely crazy. Just in the last five, six, seven years, particularly. It seems like every day I see highlighted in the, new, in the news another extreme being promoted as normal. And it's all in our face. And don't you dare disagree. So I have this question going through my head again and again, every day it seems like, running through my mind. How can we live as Christians in a day like this? This, like today. Hebrews 13 is our text. And uh, we'll need to take a few minutes just to review uh, uh, the message of Hebrews, partly because we've not been here in Hebrews for several months. We've been working through the book of Hebrews on, on our communion Sundays uh, for the last number of years, and we're nearing the end of the book, but uh, the last couple of months we've been doing some other things on those communion Sundays, and so it's been a little while. So it's good to go back and review, um, but I think there's another reason, and we see a change in the, the flavor of the, the book of Hebrews here, or the direction of things. Uh, in this letter. The letter moves from an instructional focus to an applicational aim. Uh, it's moving from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative is telling us what to be thinking. The imperative is moving us to what do we do with this. Uh, a lot of people get frustrated that Christians always talk about what they do and do and do and what they don't, and, and so they get all frustrated with that, so they just say, well, we just want to know what to believe. Just tell us what to think. And yes, we need to know doctrine. We need to know what we need to think. But out of that comes some action. And here in chapter 13, we're moving from the, um, 
the instructive to the exhortation. This is what we need to do with this, what we've been taught. When we understand Christ, we will know what we need to do in this world. So this book of Hebrews, the entire Bible for that matter, I love how the Bible all fits together in one story about one who is Christ, God in the flesh. But this book of Hebrews in particular is about Jesus. It's about Christ. And this book of Hebrews exalts Christ. He is so much better than anything else that can come at you. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priest. He's after a different order. He's better than the promises and all the sacrifices that were for a time. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that uh, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. So he did it one time, not all these old sacrifices that was just a picture of what the Messiah would be doing. But he, as Messiah, one time had a single sacrifice for sins, our sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. I love that. He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down in his Father's presence in glory. I don't understand all that, but I just I do know this. That's a place of he accomplished something that nobody else could do. And there's rest and there's honor there. Just this last week I had the privilege of going to Ankeny to Faith Baptist Bible College. I am so so impressed with that place. And they, they had a, a conference for pastors and their wives uh, called the Refresh Conference. They do that every year, and uh, it, it, was, it was really good. But this year I noticed something that um, it just, I was kind of puzzled. Um, normally you bring in outside speakers to the campus for a conference, and everybody's all excited about these outside speakers. But the grand majority of the speakers they had at the Refresh Conference this year were professors from the school and I'm thinking they're getting kind of cheap there aren't they they're not going out and finding those big names those big guns and whatever and they're just having these guys speak from the school and as I worked through the conference listening to it I thought that's the actual highlight of the whole conference these guys are doing a great job in their instruction of the word and the, the, their younger professors are replacing the older professors and staying right on track and they're communicating well and the student body is getting it. And I was thrilled with the instruction. That was the highlight of the conference for me. But you know how you go to the end of the conference and you're kind of ready to leave and get out the door and maybe skip the last, last thing? Well, they had a professor speak uh, on Psalm chapter 110 that's speaking, it's a prophetic psalm about the Messiah who's coming and what he will accomplish. It's an amazing prophecy. And he just unfolded that, exposed the text, and, and, and under, we, we walked away going, oh, so that's what it's all about. But it addresses this fact that, that the Lord says to my Lord, David says, who is the Messiah, the one to come, Jesus, sit thou at my right hand. It's a place of honor. Jesus accomplished that. When Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, the redemptive plan would be completed. So we, that, and that's what the emphasis of Hebrews is all about. Jesus Christ came to do what no one else could do, and he did that for us, and because of that, we have hope for eternity. 
So when we consider Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith in him, our lifestyle will change. We'll be, imp- we'll be impressed with him. <clears throat> but we'll, we're also, as we read through the book of Hebrews, we're impressed with the warnings. Remember those warnings that we went through? These, these uh, you better watch out, <laughs> these warnings. And there are a number of these w- warnings in Hebrews. Remember this chart? We addressed this back in November. There, you have a number of, of warnings. And with each one of these warnings, there is an assurance within the immediate context. So with the warning, there's a reminder that God's going to be faithful. He's going to keep you. And also we note that, that these, these warnings are just that. They're warnings. They are to be heeded. There, there is a danger if they're not addressed these and these warnings then as you see there in the middle column really highlight the purpose of the book and the purpose of the book is this to motivate us to persevere in the faith to press on to keep on following Jesus would you look again at Hebrews chapter 12 as we lead up to chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself. Consider Jesus who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You skip on down to verse 7. We go through these hard things, this discipline that we would endure. So the whole point of Hebrews and these warnings is that we would endure. You're going to go through hard things in life, the things that you don't understand, things that make you want to just quit, but you cannot be faint-hearted. You must keep on persevering in what you believe about Jesus And so when you see the whole Bible fits together and you see that Hebrews points us to that, that the whole Bible fits together with this story about this Messiah, Jesus, you're motivated with this way of living, this Christian ethic in a world gone mad. That's what Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 13 is emphasizing, how we are to live this Christian ethic in a world gone mad. Lord, we have just a few minutes here this morning to open this text and apply it to how we live as a body of believers. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would help it just come, come to life. And we see it and we're moved by these truths so that then, Lord, we can live for you in a world that's gone mad. We pray for your grace and your courage and hope because we know, Jesus, you love us. May God's love motivate us again today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we tend to think um, things have never been as bad as they are today. And certainly things have changed. This is not your father's Oldsmobile anymore. <laughs> this is not your father's America anymore. It's a different world. We live in a corrupt world. However, At the time of the writing of this book of Hebrews, which was maybe 30, at the max, 40 years after, it was prior to the fall of of Jerusalem, or AD 70. So just prior to that. So maybe 30 years after Christ or so, AD 60. Think Nero in Rome and all that's going on with that. You talk about corrupt. 
and crazy. So it was this time of the writing of Hebrews that the world was as pagan and immoral as ever. And, and as I understand it, as I'm reading, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers that had been pressed out of Jerusalem, and they went. But this was a group, particularly in in Rome, believers in Rome that lived in that pagan world, living in a totally pagan culture, much like what we live in today. So, what are ethics? Ethics. Ethics involve your concepts of morality, right and wrong, moral good and bad. If you look up the definition in your dictionary, it's going to come up with something like that. Concepts of morality, right and wrong, moral good, and those things that are bad. Um, I've, I think I pulled out this book because I was at a conference and they gave me this book. I never would have bought a book this big because I'm thinking, I can't read a book that big. Right? It's a huge manual on Christian ethics by, by Wayne Grudem, a phenomenal scholar of our day. had the privilege of hearing him speak. Uh, but it's an introduction to biblical moral reasoning. And I'm thinking, man, the Bible must have a whole lot to say about this matter of ethics. But I need to add something to that definition. Ethics, concepts of morality, right and wrong, moral good and bad, in the eyes of God. Now that changes the whole picture, doesn't it? Not just what people say about what's right or wrong, but what God says about it. I was just... uh, watching a, a little video clip of, a, of an apologist having a conversation with somebody on the street, and, and this person was disagreeing, and, and so they were talking. And so the, the apologist said, so do you believe there's a God? He said, absolutely, I believe in God. So, so who is God? And the person said, I'm God. And so do you believe in truth? Certainly, I believe in truth. Whatever truth I come up with, you have your truth, I have my truth. Have you heard that? You know what that's saying? I'm my own God, you're your own God. Well, what happens when everyone is their own God and they have their own truths? Everybody's going to be mad at each other because it's not their truth, right? What has to determine what's right is the creator of it all who is the authority of it all, which we'll get to that here in a few weeks. (coughs) Excuse me. So how then do we live morally in the eyes of God? If Jesus, who he is, says he is in the book, and we read about it here in the book of Hebrews, and he is who he says he is, God in the flesh who loves us, who became the perfect sacrifice for us there on the cross, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. Jesus isn't dead. He did die, for, not because of his sins, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not something that we accomplish. He died so that we could live. Because of that, we have ethics that then reflect him. Our concepts of right and wrong are not what we think. It's what Jesus thinks. So what would that look like in this world today? What ethics do we live by? Well, Hebrews 13 affords us with a few 
I, I call these five formative ethics for the Christian. Uh, as I said, this is a big book. There's a whole lot that the Bible has to say about ethics. So we're not going to cover all of that. But here in Hebrews 13, we have a good starting place. These form the foundation for so much more that then we apply making decisions, each individual before a holy God with his word. The Bible is our guide. The Bible is truth we can count on. Amen? Can you say that with me again? The Bible is truth. We can count on it. And it reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And in that, we find the gospel. And when we respond to the gospel, it changes everything. And in this gospel, we discover the love of God. And God's love motivates us for how we live. So here are the five formative ethics for the Christian. Number one, Christians love well. Christians love well. Can you go back a slide? I just thought, did I misspell something on that page? But maybe it's just the font, all right? So that's right. Cool. So five formative ethics for the Christian, all right? Christians love well. We know how to love. And uh, number two, Christians honor marriage. Hmm. That's something that is definitely a different idea nowadays, isn't it? Christians love marriage. Number three, Christians understand contentment. Ah, so this will affect so many different areas of how we live, when we, how we view money, what we do with money. What, what is, you know, is it socialism? Is it uh, communism? Is it capitalism? What, what, what's the right? No, we follow what, there's a contentment, and we'll get there. All right, another one. God shows the Christian how to enjoy security. How we find that things are going to be okay. And last, Christians respond to authority. There is a God who is a God of order, and he helps us respond with, with understanding of this. It's not one being better than the other. It's, it's God's plan. So, aren't you glad I'm not going to try to cover all these today? We're just going to cover one. And we'll come back to the rest in the weeks ahead. Christians Love well. We get this because of who God is. So this should be our distinguishing characteristic. When people think of this group of people gathering in this place, those people love each other. They get it. That should be what everyone knows about Walnut Park. Is it? These people love each other. There are several passages that, that it's really good to have in mind as we take this verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, where we consider it. But it, if you have these pictures in mind, these verses in mind, it helps us get this point very clearly. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Can you turn there? I was with somebody this week who said, I like to be in a church where you have to turn somewhere in your Bible. Maybe you, don't, maybe you have it on your phone. All right, can you click there? Whatever that is. But, but would you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? This is a formative verse. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes. <clears throat> and that, that's describing this God who is Trinity, who is one. And in this, the whole thing about the Trinity is God is love. That, that answers the question about how do you comprehend the Trinity. Without the Trinity, we don't comprehend love. 
So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. So this is what is motivating you. Why? God loved us. And that's the whole point of the Old Testament. People say the God of the Old Testament is, is, is a mean God. No. You read the Bible, you read from Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi, you see that God continually is showing his hesed, his loyal, steadfast love to a people who didn't deserve it. And none of us do either. God loves me. That motivates me. Steadfast, loyal love. So you get to the New Testament. Now, if you'll go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, another reference. that So you have that picture in the Old Testament. God says, love one another because I've loved you. <clears throat> and then you see how that's lived out as God takes care of his children, even as they failed him. You come to Matthew chapter 22, there's this question that comes to him. So how are we supposed to understand the law? And Jesus says to him, the greatest commandment is this. Matthew 22, verse 37. You see it there? Matthew 22, verse 37. First book in the New Testament, Matthew 22, verse 37, he says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, everything you've got. And that means that when we love God, we're going to come to him with this spirit. Whether I'm home or away, God, I want to please you. We make it our aim to please him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and also Galatians 1, 10. We're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And we're bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this is our motivation. We're, we're loving God. We're walking in a way that it's pleasing to God. We're bearing fruit that lasts in every good work, and, it, and it's increasing in our awareness of who God is. In the very next verse in Matthew, chapter 22, verse 38, Jesus says to him, and the rest of the law is like this, you will, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Well, how do you do that? But Jesus expanded on that on, on John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Again, this is a review, I know, but you, I want you to be able to put these passages together as we look at Hebrews 13. Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, love God, love your neighbor. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Will you see that in your Bible right now? Just go ahead and turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All right, chapter 13. Verse 35, 34. <clears throat> A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, what? By what? The way you're loving one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, your followers of Jesus, if you have love one for another. So that's the context, that's the story flow through this as we get to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 shows us the dominant exhortation, all right? This is, this is, this is, this is something that we need to do, it's an exhortation. And verses 2 and 3 then line up underneath verse 1, obviously, but they're a, a sub-point or they're an expansion of this thought of let brotherly love continue. 
So the dominant exhortation is let brotherly love continue. That's a word that's used in the New Testament a lot. If you read uh, John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and my word abide in you. It's that word minnow or to continue, all right? Keep on coming back to the word of God. So remain, continue, abide, stay here. And this word minnow, remain, is a present active imperative. Now, as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, all of a sudden that catches your attention if you're reading it in that language or if you're listening to it in that language. They've not heard that before. They've not heard the imperative. They've had a lot of indicative or thoughts that we need to be thinking. But this is, an imp- this is a command. And this follows what we looked at back in November in chapter 12, verse 28. We're back in Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, where it says, Let us be grateful. Let us offer God acceptable worship. And then here we read in Hebrews chapter 13, Let brotherly love continue. In the English, it all kind of sounds like those are all three, com- three commands all together. But in chapter 28, 12, verse 28, the word let us be grateful is, is a subjunctive or a strongly suggested uh, juicive command in, in that language. But it's, 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 a, it's the idea of this is the mood we need to have. Think this way. It's strongly suggested. We really need to be grateful. And we really need to be offering God acceptable worship because of everything we've learned from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. But here in chapter 13, I brought this out a couple of months ago as well, that chapter 13 verse 1 now is a command. Remain loving, present Active, so this is keeping on, keeping on, keeping on, no matter the circumstances. Doing this, it's an active command. That's an, it's an imperative. Do this. This is what we do. This is what it's all about. This is what it, Walnut Park is, a people that love each other. In a culture where we are under pressure to abandon the faith, let brotherly love continue I came across a stat this last week that just shocked me it used to be for years all my lifetime as I followed this in order for a church just to maintain status quo kind of the average you know if our church is 140 uh, just to be able to remain at 140 that church has to increase by 15 percent just to stay at 140 that's been pretty much the case for a long time. You just, you have to, there has to be new people coming, new, pe- new believers, uh, new children in the nursery, you know, all of these things in order to be able to just maintain at least 15%. You know what the average is now? For a church to just be able to stay where they are, they have to increase by 30% a year. Yeah. That's replacing 40, 45 people every year. God's blessing with that. That's happening. But do you realize that in a world where there's all kinds of pressure just to walk away from God, the thing that's going to keep you following God is to know you're loved and that you're loving somebody else like Jesus loves you. Would you do that? And uh, Yes. I love that response. Would you do that? Yes. Somebody's listening. You're loved. 
you have a chance to love. Verse 2 shows that hospitality serves as a means of doing that. And verse 3 also shows us that helping prisoners and those who are ill-treated is really important. This word love of the brethren is one word. Again, this is a review. We touched on this in November. It's a picture word, and it's a word that you know real well because it's a city that's named after it, and you've seen this before. It's the word Philadelphia, all right? But in their language, what they see is not a city. They see two words. Uh, phileo is the word to, to love in a, in a kind way, and adelphos, or adelphia, it, as this, it's brother. This is your brother. So you're loving in a kind way your brother. In a loyal way, you're there for them, your brother. Philadelphia. It speaks of a bond of kinship or family. It doesn't matter where we're from, what our background is, what we look like. We're family. Christians that have this bond. People who are not related by blood love each other as if they were. This is Philadelphia brotherly love. Last week we had the privilege of having Chris Anderson here who I knew as a teenager, a 7th, 8th grader. You heard this story, a lot of fun, how God is continuing to use that with all three of his brothers. He has an older brother named Jeff. He's kind of the leader of the bunch. He's the, he's the alpha male kind of out there. And then Chris is the one that everybody loves, you know. He's just, he's just everybody's best friend kind of thing. And in the middle, there's a middle brother named Dan. And Dan, is the, he's, he's, he's been a phenomenal missionary in Brazil. God has used him to multiply and to equip. And to, and to be a missionary there, you have to be able to figure out. You just got to face the, the challenges of life and figure out a way to make things work. And he's been a perfect way that way. We've, we've had him here before, I think, a long time ago. But Dan was stuck in the middle, <clears throat> the middle child. Anybody here a middle child? We've got some of you, all right? And you're the one that nobody remembers. Oh, yeah, there's that middle child, all right? Well, well that was kind of the way it was with Dan. He had three brothers, and they, all, uh, and they were very competitive, all of them. And it seemed like normally they were fighting and, and it was usually Dan fighting with one of his brothers because he's the middle child. You understand that. But the other day, we were talking over it and bring, bring, bringing back some of these memories, and, and Chris said, but you know, if somebody else was attacking us, Dan was leading the charge to take care of me. Dan was the defender. Why? You're talking about my brother there. That's this word, Philadelphia love. You are loyal. You're there. You do whatever is necessary to take care of your family. That's the Christian love, brotherly love. Make sure this is dominant. Make sure this is continuing. We have our place here in Hebrews chapter 13. Would you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 in this relation? Because it uses both the word uh, agape love and this word Philadelphia. You see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I think it's on the screen as well. 
Now concerning brotherly love, that's the word we're looking at here in Hebrews chapter 13. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So it's interesting, Paul was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks, maybe a month, before persecution hit, right? And, and he had to leave. So these believers came together very quickly. So who taught them how to love like this? The passage tells us, you've been taught by God to love in an agape way by employing Philadelphia brotherly love. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So not just in their local town, but believers in that whole region. What is now Turkey. We we urge you, brothers, do this. Do what? Brotherly love. Do this more and more. So this is the exhortation that we're getting here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Be sure this bond, this brotherly kinship continues. It remains. It stays strong. It persists. This mental, loyal, this, this remaining loyal love. Then, look again at Hebrews 13, verses 2 and 3. Here's the situation. Strangers show up. Strangers. These were Christian people in need. Christians in need. And this word, as you see it there in that language, is the word philoxonia. So you see that phila, which is their idea of, of... being kind to someone you care about. It's a loving kindness. And then Zonia is, you're a stranger. So if you're trying to really tell your younger brother off, you can say, you're just a Zonia. You're, you're, you're not from this world. <laughs> you're out there, all right? And the, there's an imperative here again. So two imperatives in two verses. You have this imperative of brotherly love continue it's got to keep on remaining and then there's do not neglect that's the imperative this loving the stranger a brother who is a stranger who has a need here's what was happening people would be coming through on their way because of whatever needs or persecution and they had to find lodging but they could not use the public lodging remember this is a perverse culture and the public lodging That was not the place a Christian would go because of what was going on there. It wasn't safe. So this was a need, a need of someone to take in a Christian brother. It was almost a refugee situation in their setting because of perversion and persecution. Again, you're thinking of Nero and that world and what what kind of a culture would allow Nero to remain in power? They They liked it. And notice this phrase, Um, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hmm. Some entertain angels. Remember Lot? Remember Gideon? How about Samson's parents? Now, this is mentioned, you've done it unto me. What a privilege. Then verse 3 addresses some very hard cases. Will you see this in verse 3? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. These are believers that have been imprisoned 
or are being abused. So, there's another command here. So you have the command to love one another, keep on doing that. You have the command, you have the command to uh, not neglect uh, caring for the stranger, and then you have this command to remember. Remember the prisoner. This is someone who is in jail for Christ's sake. In jail for saying and believing what they believed. First Peter references this. Now, I think we can make application for caring for those who have been incarcerated for crimes that are committed. And this is definitely a place to see a pattern for how we care for that. But the context here is caring for someone who is a Christian who's just speaking what they believe the Bible says. And we're getting to that day in our world where if you say what God's word says, that's hate speech, and you, need, you deserve to be incarcerated, or at least sued. Remember the prisoner. In the days ahead, remember the prisoner. Speaking as a pastor to people I love. Number two, remember the abused. This is a word in their language that has the idea of caring for someone who is tormented or it says brotherly love, you're caring for someone who is afflicted, oppressed by evils. It's only used one other time in just uh, a couple chapters earlier. Hebrews chapter 11, verse, is it verse 37? Uh, those who were stoned, those who were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep's, sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That's the same word. Only other time this word, this word is used. But that's the context. So ethical considerations for us to make out of this passage. Let me just touch on these for about five minutes here. In our day, more than ever, more than previous generations, your Christian brothers and sisters need your loyal love. And the reason to gather on Sundays is to be reminding ourselves that we need each other. In Christ, we desperately need each other. So you're at, showing up isn't just a matter of, well, whether I want to or not. There's somebody there that needs you. That your, your interaction, what you're going through, your wisdom, your story, your prayers for them, they need you. So make this a priority to be loyal in the way you're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a have to, it's not an obligation, but there's some people that really need you to know that they're loved by God through you and how you care for their needs. You're listening, you're active, you're there. This command tells me something. We're going to struggle to want to do that. In our sinful nature, we, we bail. We aren't loyal. We're like the 11 who were fair-weather friends. Oh, Jesus, I'll never forsake you. And boom, out the gate, you're gone. I'll never, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. Peter, do you love me? <laughs> Number two, hospitality serves an essential need. <clears throat> so do it. It's not convenient. It's not easy. But learn hospitality. Move it up on the scale of what's important. 
One of the reasons why we're urgent about seeing our life groups gather and multiply and because of this. It's a way of showing brotherly love through hospitality. Open your home. Well, I don't like having people in my home. Get over it. Well, it's not a perfect place. It's not a, it, it, my, my house is a mess. So what? So is mine. Well, don't, no. I'm sorry, Lori. All right. <laughs> oh, she keeps a nice house. But hospitality serves an essential need. And we tend to get real comfortable with, with people we like. So it's not just with the people we like, not just us four and no more. And that's our problem. We tend to just be drawn to our favorite friends, us four and no more. And this is a struggle for people. Like, I'm, I'm shy. I'd rather just be alone. Uh, it's, it's a struggle for people who have been in comfortable settings with the same people for a long time. We don't even notice when strangers enter the picture. Did you notice strangers entering, entering your picture? Um, or if we do notice them, we hold them at bay until we know that we can trust them. That's an Iowa thing. Down south, oh, hello, brother, come on in, and they don't care at least about you. All right, God bless you, and they don't mean it. Now, sometimes they do, but there's just a friendliness about the south that isn't genuine sometimes. I'm going to get crucified for saying that, but it's just... But in Iowa, I don't know you yet. Let's wait a while. No. Hospitality. Love the brother. Am I stepping on some toes there? You know, to this day, in a lot of Christian circles where I go in Iowa, I'm still an outsider, and I've been here for seven years. They don't know if they trust me or not. I'm just saying, we need to get over that. Hospitality serves an essential need. It's a command. So that means we need to plan on obeying that command. Your home, your coffee shop, ways to meet that essential need. People that are lonely and hurting. I'm preaching. Number three. Reach out to aid the oppressed believer. We read as though imprisoned with them. Look at yourself as though you were already imprisoned with them. And that changes your perspective. What would you, what would you need? What would you appreciate having? Okay, then act on that need. Uh, let me encourage you to, to connect with Voice of the Martyrs at persecution.com and get their emails and, and do something about it, not just read the the email, but, but respond to that. But not, it's not, not just out there. Christians here are struggling. They have needs. And there's some persecution. Be there for them. Again, the problem we have is we tend to distance ourselves. We don't want to get involved. It's just complicated. It, it, it creates problems. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, we read, Paul said, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We need to share in that suffering. And a great example of this is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. Paul says, You are aware that, that 
that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philgius and Hermogenes. Phygelus, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Then he goes on to say this, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched, he went out of his way, he searched for me earnestly and found me. It was a priority to him to love his brother who was in jail. Number four, the abused need safe haven. The abused. Those are not easy words. There is no place for abuse. And those who are in that place need a place where they can find a place where they're loved. We need to be alert to those needs. Remember those who are mistreated. In the back on the table, there's a little slip of a paper, a stack of them, with a website on it, for website for Sydney Village, where you can contact her. That's a safe means. If you know of somebody that needs that, would you take that slip to them? Maybe you need that. You need to know that there's a place where people are going to love you, going to help, and be alert to your need. I love the story about the little boy who would, Sunday after Sunday, just walk for miles to get to church. This is a long time ago, but he'd walk to miles, walk and walk and walk. And people would say to this little boy, so why are you walking, you're walking by other churches and you, and you, and you walk to this church that's so far from where you live? Why do you, why do you walk this whole way to get to church? And the little boy's answer was, because the people there know how to love a little boy. May that be our testimony at Walnut Park Baptist Church. Lord, may brotherly love continue because of who you are. May we look out for each other. May we seek to be the ones that you use to meet the needs so that your love can be known and that there can be hope. If a person knows their love, they can have hope. And this world more than ever needs the hope of Jesus Christ seen and lived out in the lives of a group of believers who know how to love each other this way. So Lord, would you grant us your blessing with people who get over offenses and over hurts and over selfishness and we learn to love like you love us this is what we're supposed to be known for do this lord and may we be encouraged in that process in jesus name amen